From Share Cancer Support, this is Our MBC Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico. So glad you're here, since no one should face MBC alone. The RMBC Life podcast is for the MBC community, developed by people living with MBC in an effort to lift up marginalized voices, share stories, and experiences. As we end our season one with a focus on research during the week of the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, we're joined with patient advocate and author Anne Lozer and Dr. Aditya Bardia of the Right Dose Initiative. This initiative is powered by many talented and generous patient advocates, including my co-host and friend, Shante Randall. Shante was involved in so many important initiatives during the short 19 months she lived with this disease, and it says so much about her that this interview that she co-hosted was done just a week and a half before she died. I knew that she was struggling with pain management and that there were questions about her next steps, but we all had no idea of the level of pain and discomfort she was dealing with at the time of this interview. We have dedicated our entire season one to her memory and will release a remembrance episode for her at the end of this month. Shante felt strongly that the Right Dose Initiative was important and advocated for us to highlight this great work on the podcast. We're glad she did. All too often, when metastatic breast cancer patients join a clinical trial, they are treated with the highest possible dosage, also known as the maximum tolerated dose, that causes the most challenging side effects. Given we, those living with MBC, will be in treatment for the rest of our lives, the Right Dose Initiative, along with its partner, the Patient-Centered Dosing Initiative, aims to dismantle this paradigm for MBC patients. Both of our guests have accomplished an impressive amount in addition to the important work being discussed today. Anne Lozer is a well-known NBC advocate, researcher, and author. She wrote the comprehensive book titled The Insider's Guide to Metastatic Breast Cancer after being diagnosed with early-stage breast cancer at 39 and with metastatic breast cancer 18 years afterward. Anne is a member of the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance and Komen Greater New York City's Metastatic Advisory Committee. She is a research grant reviewer and a project lead graduate. Anne's concerns about patients' treatment-related side effects motivated her to establish the patient-centered dosing initiative of movement made possible through the collaborative efforts of patient advocates and medical professionals. Dr. Bardia is a board-certified medical oncologist and attending physician at Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center and assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. As the director of Precision Oncology Program at the MGH Center for Breast Cancer, Dr. Bardia has led the clinical development of the newly approved antibody drug conjugate ADC, Sazituzumab Govetican, and is working on an investigational oral estrogen receptor degrader, or SERD, for metastatic breast cancer patients. Dr. Bardia is especially interested in optimal biological drug adaptations to maximize quality of life for individual patients while maintaining treatment efficacy. Dr. Bardia has received several research awards, 
the Outstanding Award for Research Excellence at the Mayo Clinic, the Young Investigator Award from ASCO, and the Douglas Family Foundation Prize for Excellence in Oncology Research at MGH. Dr. Bardia is the editor of Precision Medicine Clinic Section of The Oncologist, co-leader of the Molecular and Precision Tumor Board at MGH, and the editorial board member of ASCO Molecular Oncology Tumor Board. Welcome to you both, Anne Lozer and Dr. Bardia. We're so glad you're here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be joining this podcast, Lisa. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure as well. Wonderful. Well, let's start at the beginning, Anne, and I'll start with you. Uh, As someone who's been a leading NBC advocate for some time, how do you decide what to focus your time on now? Well, right now it's pretty simple. My time is divided into, as far as NBC goes, two major components. One is updating my book, The Insider's Guide to Metastatic Breast Cancer, as new research unfolds and new treatments are approved. And secondly, but equally importantly, is my work with a patient-centered dosing initiative, which for the first six months after um, it launched was pretty much a a 40-hour-a-week job. (laughs) So my weeks actually took about 50 hours between the two endeavors. And the rest of the time I spent with my husband and parrot. Well, and I'm very grateful because I know that you do a lot of other things as well, Anne, that you just aren't mentioning that I know about. So I appreciate that you're focusing your time on those two initiatives and those two, you know, passion projects of yours. But I know that you're incredibly generous and you do much more than that. But so I just have to say my gratitude for that. So I do appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. And, you know, if you twist my arm, long enough, then I will do something for you. This is a podcast, <laughs> Anne, and people will hear this. <laughs> Shante gets in trouble, too. Shante is, like, everywhere, and I have to, you know, we all have to oh, be careful. Yeah. It's a secret. All right. Well, anyway, um, we appreciate you. So, in your work, what continues to inspire you, Anne? Because there's there's a lot to be inspired about, but what, 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 what inspires you? All my life, I've wanted to help For a while in my professional career, I was a social worker before I moved into the IT or technology field. After I got diagnosed with early stage breast cancer, I put together a step-by-step guide to help guide patients through the initial stages of the disease and how to contend with them and how to find information. And then in the interest of helping others after I was diagnosed and I found myself desperate for information that was up-to-date, complete, and accurate, I soon realized that I wasn't the only one looking for that type of information. And I also realized how desperate patients were because I was part of social media. We were all trying to exchange information. So that's how my book came about. And we could talk in more depth later, but that's what inspires me. When a patient comes back and said, you just saved me hours of research, that And, you know, it's a time when we're most confused. We as people living with NBC are dealing with so much, especially in the beginning, fear of dying immediately. Some of us feel that way. It's the worst time to try to digest information, and yet that information can be so 
helpful to all of us, including in our dialogues with our doctors. So just knowing that and saving people time and hopefully helping them in the process is the main thing that has inspired my, my life. Well, before we move on to the specifics of the Right Dose Initiative and the work done with the patient-centered dosing initiative, right, and how they're related, I would love to hear more about your experience, Anne, as a person who was an early-stage breast cancer survivor for 18 years and then you before your progression uh, to metastatic breast cancer. So if you can speak briefly, or it doesn't have to be briefly, actually, um, speak to that experience. You're an early-stager for a long time, and now you're metastatic breast cancer. I think that's, you know, all of us end up talking about our stories. Um, Mine may not be so different than that of others, but what may make it, what may set it apart is that I was misdiagnosed with my early stage disease for four years. And then again, with my metastatic disease for four years, specifically found the lump when I was 39 And I went to my doctor who referred me to a breast surgeon and I insisted on a mammogram, which turned out to be negative. And then I insisted on an ultrasound, which turned out to be negative. So my doctor said, really, you could stop worrying about it. You're young. And we quote unquote followed it for four years, at which point the doctor felt a small change in that lump. And to me, it never felt normal. And so we finally did a biopsy, and it turned out to be stage 2 breast cancer, hormone receptor positive. At that time, at 93, they didn't check for her, too. That experience led me to feel that I really had to become my own advocate. However, I wasn't really told how to look out for a potential return of a disease. And that's true of many of us, I believe, especially back then. And so what happened in 2007 was I was working in a uh, company that was going through a remodel, and there was dust everywhere. So for three months, I was working in a very unclean environment, and I developed a chronic cough. And I went to ear, nose, and throat doctors, and meanwhile, I was seeing my medical oncologist every year. All my tests were normal. That cough was misdiagnosed as post-nasal drip or, you know, difficulty with my sinuses. And then I retired in 2011, and after my retirement, I totally lost my voice. Also, my eye, my left eye began to droop. But it was the loss of the voice that made me visit the ear, nose, and throat specialist again. And he demanded CT scans, at which point it was found that there was a lesion on my lung that was pressing against the laryngeal nerve, paralyzed my vocal cord, and also was causing this syndrome called Horner syndrome, where your eye droops, your pupils are a different size, and you don't sweat on one side of your face. And by the time that was discovered and we did additional tests and I went for diagnostics, it was found that there was a leader of malignant pleural effusion in my lungs. There was pericardial effusion around my heart, which had been causing heart palpitations, and there were numerous lung metastases. So we did 
some pathology again at that point in time, and it was determined it was a recurrence, ER positive, or two negative, because now we had the herd to test. Mm-hmm. Eight years of misdiagnosis really makes you think long and hard about accepting everything at face value that you're told. And even though it was a difficult experience, as anyone could imagine, and many of us have gone through similar, unfortunately, it really made me question some of the things that I would normally have accepted with regard to the medical community. That's pretty much my story. Well, thank you for telling it. And I think it's a story that while it's unique to you, I think there's enough parallels, unfortunately, with many of our listeners and people living with NBC. So for people who may not be familiar with the work that you both have been doing with the Patient-Centered Dosing Initiative, can you explain what it aims to do and why you felt it was important to launch it? It began with a phone call between myself and another NBC patient advocate who many of us know named Christine Hodgson. And that phone call was made in October of 2019, at which point we jointly tried to determine what could possibly be done to improve patients with MBC quality of life and maintain or even improve therapeutic effectiveness. We brainstormed a couple of ideas, and at the end of that conversation, we both decided that we wanted to focus on the routine use of the maximum tolerated dose on NBC patients. And literally with that phone call, the patient-centered dosing initiative was launched. We soon added additional team members, and at this point we now have nine. But the purpose of the patient-centered dosing initiative is to encourage patients and their doctors to discuss the optimal approved dose of treatment for MBC based upon the unique patient's circumstances, psychological factors, and physical criteria. Many patients are not aware that for many MBC therapies, multiple OL doses exist. And typically when a patient begins a treatment where there are multiple allowed dosages, they start on what's called the maximum tolerated dose or higher dose. And that's usually found in phase one clinical trials. It's also typically the most toxic allowed dose. And so we feel that the lower allowed doses, which are given after an adverse event or a patient struggling on the MTD, are maybe effective enough to be used where, you know, it's an initial treatment. And those dosages should be discussed between patients and their doctors and jointly selected. The MTD is really the maximum tolerated dose of a drug. And that dosage is determined in phase one clinical trials, which escalate the dose until the toxicity is too much, and then the dosage is dropped a level. And that dropped dosage is the one that's used in phase two in three clinical trials and then in the clinic. So it's the dose just under the most toxic unbearable dose. That's the maximum tolerated dose, and that is the dose that's typically used as the starting dose in the clinical setting. Dr. Guardian may have something to add to that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank, thank you, Anne. Thanks for sharing your story because after your phone call in October, I got uh, not a phone call, but an email from your group in November. 
last year. Um, and as a brief background, I'm a medical oncologist, breast medical oncologist. And a large part of what I do is take care of patients with uh, breast cancer, including metastatic breast cancer. And from a research side, very motivated to better therapies for patients with breast cancer, including metastatic breast cancer. And I oversee the precision medicine unit um, in breast cancer at our center. And I was invited by the San Antonio program committee last year to give a talk on therapeutic development in the era of precision medicine. And my talk was titled Paradigm Shift from Maximum Tolerated Dose to Optimal Biological Dose. And the premise of the talk was, if you look at the development of drugs, traditionally, uh, chemotherapy has been developed with the philosophy of maximum tolerated dose. And they started in the 1960s and 70s, where impressive results from chemotherapy in leukemias and lymphomas overcame the prevailing uh, pessimism about cancer treatment and led to a growth in various chemotherapy agents. And this was done through uh, clinical trials. And if you look at the primary objective of those clinical trials, the objective was essentially to find a dose which was defined as maximum tolerated dose. And the reason for that, the reason for that is this was based on modeling which showed that if you increase the dose, you also increase efficacy. And so you can find a sweet spot where the probability of efficacy is 30% and the probability of toxicity is 10%. So a ratio of one to three, and this led to the three plus three design to maximize the efficacy while controlling for toxicity. The challenge is that this chemotherapy model of this monotonic dose efficacy relationship might not be applicable for targeted therapies. And in the era of targeted therapies in precision medicine, you might not need maximum tolerated dose for efficacy. And what you need is optimal biological dose. It's about targeted therapy. It's about hitting the target. So can you have the optimal dose that hits the target uh, and at the same time is safe and effective for the patient? And if you talk about examples, we can talk about you know, various class of drugs, capsidabine, uh, CDK4-6 inhibitors, or even endocrine therapy. And uh, there are examples where you can clearly find a dose that is not the highest dose, but still has good efficacy, including ribocyclib, uh, palbocyclib, abemacyclib. Abemacyclib, the dose initially was 200 BID, but the dose that's used with endocrine therapy is 150 BID uh, with um, Ribocyclib in the metastatic setting, the dose was 600 milligram once a day, but in the adjuvant setting, the dose is 400 milligram once a day because the study showed that you know those doses are essentially uh, similar in terms of efficacy, but you have lower side effects. So that was you know my talk, and I had prepared the slides, and uh, I received an email from Anne and her group asking about how about patient-centered dosing. And that made me think that, you know, it's good to talk about optimal biological dose and optimal biological dose ultimately is the goal of a targeted therapy. But the goal for a patient is the right dose. So optimal biological dose is the right dose for the right target. But for a patient, it's the right dose for the right patient. And that is the philosophy of patient-centered dosing, that for an individual, we find the right dose. It's not a high dose. It's not the low dose. It's the right dose for an individual. Uh, and I've been working with Anne and the team to see how we can move this forward. And 
impact clinical practice so that we can you know, maximize uh, the therapeutic window. Patients are able to tolerate the drug better, but it does not compromise the efficacy. That's really a great point. When we look at the 1990s, when the paradigm, Dr. Bardia, that you were talking about, the higher the dose, the greater the efficacy, many of us will remember when breast cancer patients underwent high-dose chemotherapy with stem cell or bone marrow transplant, I believe it was something like 41,000 patients. And as it turns out, in the year 2000, the New England Journal of Medicine reported on a study of these patients that determined that their outcome was not superior to the outcome of patients remaining on the standard chemo dose. So at that point of time, we began to question this higher dose, higher toxicity, higher efficacy paradigm that was accepted for decades. Furthermore, a meta-analysis of chemotherapies on patients with multiple cancers that likewise mention or conclude that a lower dose was just as efficacious in these cases as the MTD with fewer or less severe side effects. And the one point I want to bring home as well is there's a key difference between early stage breast cancer patients and metastatic breast cancer patients. Unlike early stage breast cancer patients, individuals living with MBC, metastatic breast cancer, cannot be cured, although disease is treatable, but it's not clinically curable. And we will be on treatment for the rest of our lives. So we'll be subjected to these dosages in the current world again and again and again as we begin each new treatment. And that's why, as you said, Dr. Bardia, we really need to take a step back and look at the dose that's allowed as per the package insert for the dose that's best for that patient at that time. I think that is the key. It's the right dose. And the question is, how do you define right? And the right is keeping in line with both disease control as well as the patient's wishes and objectives in terms of what they want mm -hmm. out of the therapy, which can be different in the metastatic setting and early breast cancer setting. And it may change as the patient goes from treatment to treatment. And for our audience, the Patient-Centered Dosing Initiative in conjunction with our five-member advisory board of medical oncologists, of which Dr. Bordia is one, have come up with a set of criteria, and I'll just name a few off the top of my head, that could be discussed and we encourage to be discussed between patients and their physicians. One, as Dr. Bardia said, is the patient's goals and wishes. So for example, if a patient's daughter is getting married next month, the last thing she wants to do on her special day is deal with uncontrollable nausea or uncontrollable diarrhea. So that's a discussion point. Another one is body mass index. We're beginning to find out that more petite patients are having more neutropenia, say, on eye brands, on the maximum tolerated dose. And I will say something that I just learned. The average woman 
in America has a BMI of 29.6. So one might assume when we're looking at phase one clinical trials with a dose escalation, that the median range of BMI might be somewhere around 29.6. But in the real world, we have larger patients and we have much tinier patients. Like my BMI is 18 and a half. So I'm at 60 something percent of a normal woman's BMI. And yet in today's world, the same dose that was found in the phase one clinical trial, the maximum tolerated dose. So BMI is another criteria. The patient's blood counts, both currently and historically, is another criteria. There's one that I think is also really important and worth mentioning. What is the availability and quality of the patient's at-home care? So for example, if a patient is wheelchair-bound and there's no one at home to look after that patient, is it really the best thing for that patient to give them a dose of a drug that will cause the most severe diarrhea or terrible nausea when they're wheelchair-bound? and there's no one to help them. So we encourage that these criteria, we have 10 of them, I've only named a few, be addressed throughout the patient's treatment so that the doctor and patient can find the best dose for that patient. So for Dr. Bardia, I wanna kind of go take a few steps back before we move forward. I wanted to know what drew you to this aspect of clinical trial design and why clinical dose levels matter to you as an oncologist researcher in specific? Yeah, good question. I would come back to the concept of patient-centered. We're talking about patient-centered dosing. And if you talk about research, it's also patient-centered research. Clinical trials are the means of improving outcomes of patients who are treated uh, with a specific therapy in a clinical trial as well as advance the field for future patients. So it is patient-centered research, and this is what drew me to clinical trials as well as better therapies with this broad um, you know, guiding principle of doing research that is patient-centered. And in terms of doses, the basic philosophy is to follow the principle of do no harm, but at the same time ensure that we can keep the disease under control. And so you have to start somewhere, and usually the initial starting point is a lower dose, and then you make your way up with a higher dose to come to that sweet spot where you can have the maximum control of the disease while at the same time ensuring that the patient is able to tolerate it well. It was a tough, um, it was a tough balance with chemotherapy because of this relationship between dose and efficacy. And so you push the dose higher, you get more efficacy, uh, but then you also have more toxicity. But it's not the same with targeted therapies. And that is why I became interested in revisiting the whole principle of how drugs have developed and this principle of optimal biological dose, where you can achieve this balance of disease control while reducing toxicity and essentially don't follow the same principles that were done with the development of chemotherapy. Great, great answer. And I wanted to follow up with that because I wanted to give a big congratulations. Of course, again, Tridovi was approved by the FDA in April. 
which is amazing. It's a critical and new treatment of patients with previously treated metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Definitely a welcome discovery. And I know some of these principles were used in that, in that trial. Can you explain how it was used? We were involved with the uh, development of Trodelvi sasituzumab govitika conjugate antibody, the drug uh, included in the name. And essentially, it targets uh, an antigen trope 2, which is overexpressed in triple negative breast cancer. So we were involved with this antibody drug conjugate. And in the phase one, in terms of the doses, it went as high as 18 milligram per kilogram. But at that dose, patients were having significant neutropenia. And it was felt that that probably is not the dose that would be uh, right for patients or the dose that we should move forward with. So ultimately, the dose that was selected was 10 milligram per kilogram. And there was some biomarker work with, um, with, uh, re- through research to ensure that this is a dose that results in good inhibition of the target. And so both from a scientific perspective, as well as a patient perspective, it was felt that the 10 milligram per kilogram dose is the best dose. And that is the dose that was used further in the phase two and phase three uh, clinical trials. And that's the dose that's FDA approved. That's awesome. And just to build on that one last one question, last question is, I know that you're working on several different lines of MBC research. What are the next areas of excitement or promise from your perspective at the front lines of NBC research? Yeah, I think this is an exciting time as far as uh, research is concerned in breast cancer. And there is excitement about um, better therapies. So therapies that result in better disease control and have lower toxicities and excitement around these what we call precision medicine-based therapies. The idea being, can we find something that's abnormal in the cancer cells that's not present in the normal cells? And if you target that abnormality in the cancer cells, you can selectively control the disease while sparing the normal cells from toxicity. So it's just the opposite principle of chemotherapy, which essentially kills dividing cells. But here it's much more targeted trying to find a the abnormality in the cancer cells and using that to its disadvantage as far as disease control is concerned. The other excitement is about uh, better monitoring. The standard monitoring with scans are great, but there are limitations with scans uh, as well as difficulties with getting scans scheduled. And this was particularly difficult during the COVID pandemic because it required patients to come in the hospitals and there was concern about potential infections. But over the past few years, there's been an increasing interest in liquid biopsies, both for diagnosis, identification of uh, actionable targets, but also potentially for monitoring of disease. And I think in the future, it could potentially complement scans to begin with and maybe even down the road, replace scans for some patients, which would be very convenient for patients. And I think that would be a major advance. Let's take a quick break in our conversation with NBC advocate Ann Lozer and Dr. Aditya Bardia. At SHARE, we believe no one should face cancer alone. Our support groups are offered virtually, including a group specifically for young women with NBC. For more information on all of our metastatic breast cancer support groups, 
go to sharecancersupport.org or call the TalkMets helpline at 1-844-ASK-SHARE. That's 1-844-275-7427. Let's get back to our interview with my co-host, Shante Randall. We have a specific question from one of our listeners based in Georgia, and they want to know, how do you start the conversation with your doctor about possibly starting at a lower dose of a drug? And can you suggest some particular talking points for patients? Excellent question. And that's a great segue to the patient-centered dosing initiative, one of our strategic objectives for next year, is to provide patients with materials so that they could start the conversation about dosage with their doctors. Um, We've already begun to draft that type of material, which obviously will have to be passed by our advisory board first before it's disseminated. But in absence of that specific handout or patient talking point sheet, some of the things that the patient might want to talk with their doctor about is, okay, if I'm starting a new drug, what dosages does that drug come in? And I will say endocrine therapies or hormonal therapies only come in one dosage. But as I said before, most other therapies have multiple dosages. And talk to your doctor say, about what your goals and hopes or what your expectations is, what what have been your side effects that you're dealing with now, and discuss your care at home, you know, who's there to help you if you're dealing with, with, it, with a considerable side effect, and discuss the dosing option that may be best with you. And on our website, which is therightdose.org, is a list of the 10 uh, patient-centered criteria that you could print off and give a copy to your doctor and bring it with you as well to discuss jointly with your physician. That's just a starting point. You may end up on the maximum tolerated dose or you may end up on a lower dose, but it's the dose that would be right for you at that time. That's if you're starting a new treatment. Many patients who are on a specific treatment for a while experience adverse side effects. And in fact, in a survey that the PCDI took, 86% of patients with MBC had what they called at least one bad side effect. That's a lot. So we encourage patients who are dealing with side effects from their existing treatment also to report those to their doctors and discuss what could be done to alleviate them. It could be a dose reduction. It could be a pause in treatment. It could be that you're given medication to help your side effect or even a referral to a specialist. But that dialogue is so important and we as patients cannot expect to be helped if we don't see what's wrong. And I know it's hard for some of us, but that first step is the hardest and after that, it becomes easier. Excellent. That's wonderful to hear, and I'm looking forward to seeing that those materials become available. I think they'll be well-received, and obviously it's something that's really needed. So there was another question um, saying, where is the real change going to happen, from the clinical side or from the patient side, and what is going to drive this change? 
That is a wonderful question as well. The change has to happen on all sides. Meaning, let's think of a sandwich. So on one side is our doctor. We're on the other side. And in between, we have scientists and researchers, right? We need to reach out to oncologists to find out what their reservations are about dosing and start addressing those. And to that end, we're going to be disseminating an oncologist survey next year to find out where their concerns are. And I could tell you right now, one of their concerns, having spoken with our advisory board, is they want more data about the lower dose efficacy. So that brings us to researchers and clinical trials. So another of the PCDI's objectives for next year is to encourage stratification of outcomes in clinical trials of patients on lower doses when their dose had to be reduced due to an inverse event, and compare those outcomes to people on the standard dose who didn't have to be dose reduced. What was their progression-free survival? Was it the same? What was their level of toxicity? What was their overall survival? And by accumulating more of this data, we will be able to address oncologists' desires, which tend to be data-driven. So it has to happen on the patient side. We also have to get the data and use pharma companies, scientists, and researchers to help us. And we also have to encourage oncologists to be open to this. And in fact, we learned from some of our advisory board members, and I won't give any names, that some of them are routinely starting some of their patients on lower doses of certain specific drugs because they have seen high toxicities in their patients on the highest dose. I would just echo that. Um, it has to come from both sides in order to bring a change, and that is a relationship between a patient uh, and a provider um, that, that results in starting a therapy. The change has to come from both sides. And uh, and in the team, you know, generating additional data. And I think data would speak for itself. And once you have data, it would be easier to bring in the change. And to that point, if I might add, I really believe doctors want their patients to have great outcomes. We all have a common objective. And yet, so many patients who are on the highest toxic dose of every drug in their list, at some point, some of them go to the emergency room or a hospital as a result. And in fact, 20% of the patients who reported difficult outcomes on or side effects had to visit the ER or hospital. That's a lot. Patients miss treatments because let's say low blood counts preclude them from having the treatment on schedule, which could potentially in some cases not be good for the cancer situation, right? Sure. If you have to be off treatment. And in some cases, they may even have to stop their treatment prematurely. Sure. So doctors want quality of life and overall survival because the exact same goal that patients have. And that's right. a real strong talking point as well. That's something mm -hmm. when the patient approaches their doctor, and I just thought of this, I wish I thought of it earlier with that question. We say, doctor, we both have the same objectives. You want me to feel as well as possible and live as long as possible. And we work together. Mm -hmm. 
And this may be a question uh, for Dr. Bardia that, you know, obviously you've been involved with the patient advocates as part of PCDI and now the Right Dose Initiative. What do you think? Is it that the real change happens from the clinical side? You know, oncologists and researchers like yourself start seeing these issues um, and then they coalesce around trying to make change or on the, you know, in this, in the particular area of, you know, clinical trial development or in their own practices? Or is it actually more patient-driven, like the PCDI patient-centered dr- a dosing initiative or, uh, or and the right dose initiative now that it's evolved into that, um, which has the biggest pull? Which is, which, is the most of, which is the most impactful from where you sit, Dr. Bardia? Well, I strongly believe in teamwork. Um, and we have a clear objective that's outlined. And the objective is uh, for patients to feel well with their treatment and live longer. So that's our guiding principle. And then everyone is part of a team to achieve that objective. And I would actually even expand beyond patients and providers. I think in order to make a change, uh, it takes a village. And we need not only involvement from patients and providers, but also other stakeholders, which includes industry and regulatory authorities, uh, as well as other um, clinical organizations. And the reason I bring this up is if 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 you need to make a change from a clinical trial perspective, um, it's important that people who are involved with clinical trials uh, have have a stake in this, and we have buy-in from them. And people who are involved with trials include patients, providers, but also the regulatory authorities and industry. And if change is made in the way we do clinical trials and how drugs are approved and what's included in the label, this is something that would eventually help um, change clinical practice. There are a number of steps that are needed before we get there, but it's important to understand who all is involved in the team and so that the team is working together in achieving this objective. Right. No, that's so true. And I think the challenge is actually making sure that the people that should be part of the team that you're talking about, that they are actually talking to each other. And so that's why we were so thrilled, actually, to have the Right Dose Initiative on the pod, because it is an exceptional example of how that teamwork can actually make real change happen on the ground, like immediately. It's already happening, as Anne pointed out. And uh, and it happened on the Trudel, 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 I can always mess up that name. And it happened on the Trudel V trial as well, right? So, so that's great. And outcomes are positive. I want to shift a little bit and Shante, jump in at any moment because I know you'll, you may have some additional follow-ups, but I did want to move um, slightly. Uh, I'd asked earlier of Anne what, what inspires her to do her work. And I'd like to ask the same of you, Dr. Bardia, and what inspired you to choose oncology and oncology research as your career? Yeah, broadly, it's actually, believe it or not, uh, similar to Anne, which is to help patients. Uh, we, we get into the uh, in med school as well as become physicians with the guiding principle of helping patients. And the reason I got interested in oncology uh, was because I felt that there's a need 
to uh, improve therapies and improve the outcomes of patients with cancer. In terms of the unmet need, when I had a choice between oncology and uh, cardiology and other fields, I felt that it's a field that uh, has a big unmet need. And that is what drew me to oncology, both from a clinical side as well as a research side. And in terms of my inspiration, my inspiration is my patients, uh, the problems that they uh, face, uh, the unmet needs, and essentially research is the means to achieve that goal uh, and advance uh, the field so that we can help future patients, but in the interim also help the patients uh, that currently have cancer. And that's why I find clinical trials to be very attractive because you can help a patient in the clinic that you're seeing uh, by choosing the uh, right clinical trial or therapy for that patient and offering a therapy that's the future of tomorrow to the patient now. You mentioned, you know, the CDK inhibitors and you come out of clinical trial, you know, with the, the high dose of standard of care. What changes what's going to be standard of care? I know we talked a little bit about is this patient driven, is it clinical driven, but like, do you really foresee that that there'll be a time where the standard of care is truly a lower dose than what it could be? Like my doctor and I talked about, do we open the door at all? Do I go to a lower dose because are we going to even open the door a little bit to the cancer? So it's, it's a very interesting, like as a patient, it scares me a little to think about a lower dose because what does that, how do I know that it's going to be as efficient? Yeah. Well, you've hit the nail on the head. And I think that is uh, a potential concern is what if I use a lower dose and that lower dose results in disease progression? I like the term right dose. It's less about the higher or lower dose. It's more about the right dose for an individual. And the right dose needs to be aligned with, again, the objectives, which is Uh, What are my wishes? What do I want to get out of the treatment? As well as what's the probability that I'll be able to tolerate this dose based on past experience with other drugs, counts, as well as the support system that's available at home. And for some patients, it could be the dose that's FDA recommended. For other patients, it could be a different dose. And that's where um, the the guidance from the clinical trials comes in because usually if we do a clinical trial with say 1,000 patients, all of them don't receive uh, the same dose throughout the trial. Some of them require dose reduction because of side effects and other problems. And then looking at the outcomes of those patients who require dose reduction, if the outcomes are similar, it gives you additional confidence that that is a dose that would not compromise the efficacy, but would be better tolerated for this individual patient. Raises an interesting question. So if a patient starts on a lower dose than the maximum tolerated dose of a drug, and their cancer progresses, what are your thoughts about them titrating up to the higher dose? Is that worthwhile? Is it worth trying? Or would such a circumstance mandate a treatment switch? It is a bit context-dependent. It it is a great thought and actually something that is utilized a bit in uh, prostate cancer, where when patients have disease progression on um, androgen-based therapies, 
uh, a question is, um, is the hormonal level adequately suppressed? And if not, then you can either increase the dose or add some other therapy to suppress that. And in prostate cancer, which in general, uh, relatively speaking, is a slower growing tumor, as opposed to more aggressive cancers like, say, lymphoma or even triple negative breast cancer, you do have that, if you will, luxury of time to make that change. But for aggressive cancers, sometimes it's just too late by the time you get there uh, to just increase the dose and hope that it would achieve the disease. So it's a bit context dependent uh, on the type of cancer, but um, ultimately it's about uh, the, the, the right dose. I come back to that. It's about the right dose that's aligned with these various components in terms of patient wishes, tolerability, as well as the support system. As an aside, one of the criteria in addition to the body mass index and the patient's goals and wishes with regard to talking about the patient attributes that would lead to the right dose for the patient, we have a criterion as well as to whether the disease is indolent or aggressive. So Dr. Bardio, what you just said brings up that point as well. Wonderful. That was really a helpful series of explanations because I think that's a question that often does come up. And so thank you, Anne, for adding that question in. I, as I said, we ask the same question every interview of our guests, no matter what the subject. And so mental health during this time is, is certainly important. And it's even, it's important during any regular time, but it's even more important now with the pandemic and with uh, this year being as um, tumultuous as it's been. I want to ask each of you, and we can start with you, Anne, and then we'll go to Dr. Bardia. How are you taking care of your mental health, your, your balance, your well-being? What sort of self-care tips? You're not supposed to laugh as I'm telling, I'm asking the question, Anne. That's, that's not a good sign. That's actually a really <laughs> bad sign. <laughs> I just tell you. So, yes. So, tell us, Anne, tell us what you're, you're, you're doing to take care of yourself. And I hope that the, there's an answer. Otherwise, otherwise, we're going to have words. <laughs> you know, the reason I laugh is even in non-COVID times, the only quote-unquote self-care that I tend to do is pretty basic. I eat well, I exercise, and I spend time with people who I love and my parents. Those remain the same to me. And I think in terms of satisfaction with life when COVID began coincidentally was at the same time that we were really building the patient-centered dosing initiative and Tate's part of that wonderful team as well and as I said I just delved into work and was working 40 or 50 hours a week which many advocates work much more than that but the self-care aspect of that was the wonderful responses we were getting from other patients as our word got out and they were saying, oh, you're so glad you are doing this. Will you keep us informed? And that is among the most beautiful things I think that a person could have in their life is knowing that their work may be helping others. And so that in a way, it's karma, right? What goes around comes back. The more you give, the more you get. Thank you, Anne. So, Dr. Bardia, how are you taking care of yourself during these challenging times? 
it's it's certainly challenging uh, times that we are in, uh, both from a social perspective in terms of interaction with uh, other colleagues as well as friends, and that's something that that I miss a lot. Um, like even this this meeting probably could have been in person or you know conferences. That's where we get to interact with others. So I certainly miss that a lot. Um, and the other uh, major challenge is the interaction with patients. While we have clinics, it's not the same. And many of the uh, clinics have been converted to virtual visits. So that's the uh, downside. But in terms of the uh, silver lining and how I am uh, taking care of myself as well as my family, it's uh, remaining engaged. Uh, remaining uh, mentally engaged with uh, my friends as well as uh, colleagues, be it through uh, video calls or phone calls uh, or you know some other uh, mechanism of communication, as well as with patients. Um, virtual visits have their own advantages. It's much more convenient for the patient. And if you're able to establish the connection, uh, you can even establish a very nice connection uh, virtually. It's about the uh, intent and it's about uh, devoting time. So those are the things that that have helped me a lot is remaining engaged, uh, continuing the communication with uh, my patients as well as uh, my colleagues, and then uh, finally having purpose. And that is uh, where research comes in. It gives me purpose that I'm contributing to the field and helping patients. And that has continued despite the pandemic. Well, I certainly appreciate all of uh, both of the things that you said. And um, I think that's so important is figuring out ways to continue with connections, even though it's different than what we would all want. I just wanted to mention that my book, The Insider's Guide to Metastatic Breast Cancer, is continually updated as new treatments are approved and research unfolds. And there is also a complementary version of that book, which is likewise kept up to date, so that every single person living with NBC can have up-to-date information. So I just want to put that out there. Thank you, Anne. That is a huge resource. It's an important resource for our community, and it's incredibly generous of you, and we're very grateful to all the work that you do. I appreciate that. Well, I want to just say thank you so much. Uh, it looks like Dr. Bardia had to leave, I'm sure, because um, we are wrapping up or maybe he'll be mm-hmm. coming back. But in any case, I wanted to thank you, Anne, uh, for your generosity today. And obviously, we will write Dr. Bardia and thank him very much for this. This podcast is produced by me, Lisa Laudico, and our truly collaborative and expanding team of Jersey Baker, Natalia Green, Victoria Goldberg, Kirby Lewis, Sheila McGlone, Shante Randall, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, the Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at Share Cancer Support. Interning with us are Angelica Alberstadt and Amy Tedeschi. We have benefited from expert social media consulting from Jake Amarelli, and we now have, finally, expert sound design and original music compositions from Jim Clemens. We have an exciting November and December planned to close out our inaugural season, and we look forward to launching season two in March of 2021. 
You can find more of our episodes of RNBC Life wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, rate us, and review us, and look for a new episode every Monday. And submit your Just Gotta Share moments. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at rnbclife.org. We'd love to hear from you.